Welcome to the History of the World podcast. My name is Chris Hasler. And you're listening to Volume 2, The Ancient World. This is Episode 14, The Pyramids. The most amazing thing to modern humans about ancient times are the pyramids. It's that simple. They are the ultimate aspect of the ancient world. They gather more interest than anything. They are awesome and they are a mystery. They excite debate and from many different perspectives, all of which deserve consideration due to the lack of conclusiveness regarding their presence. Today we will try to make as much sense as we can of these incredible constructions and try to keep an open mind about the reason for the pyramids. They were used as tombs for the ancient Egyptian pharaohs. So firstly we should go back to the origin of ancient Egyptian tombs such as the Mastaba. Mastabas. So what do we already know about the Mastaba tombs of ancient Egypt? The first ones predated the pyramids. They were often made of mud bricks. So this would have been a gathering of densely packed materials of the earth, moistened and allowed to dry to create a building block. The mud bricks would be set out in a large rectangular shape with more courses being added to give the construction its eventual height which in these cases could be as much as 30 feet so five to six times taller than the average human being. The body of the pharaoh could typically be stored in the depths of a deep chamber. There appears to be a definite desire to preserve the body for as long as possible. The Mastaba was likely the tomb of choice for the elite pharaohs of the pre-dynastic and early dynastic Egypt. So we're talking from sometime in the 4th millennium BCE and certainly for the first three or four centuries of the 3rd millennium BCE. This is around 5,000 years ago. The Mastabas themselves had sloping sides, so you could argue that the Mastaba could be perceived as the shape of an unfinished pyramid. Mastabas didn't stop being produced in the later age of pyramids, but they were built for certain members of the nobility only. It absolutely does appear that one very important aspect of Egyptian burials was that the body was preserved as well as possible. This would be more difficult when the pit graves of the pre-dynastic times changed into the Mastaba tombs, where the body would not be naturally protected by the sand in the pits. So Egyptians attempted to take measures to preserve the body, and this would be the origins of mummification. The Mastaba 
would traditionally have different rooms incorporated into its design. Of course, there would be a room where the sarcophagus would be placed, which would contain the body at rest. Other rooms may serve as chapels or storerooms where friends, family and associates would be able to bring offerings such as food which would aid the body in its survival in the afterlife. Other rooms may contain personal belongings and artefacts and we would maybe have seen more of these things had many of these tombs had not been raided in later years. The Step Pyramid of Josa. Once again in episode 12 we introduced what we believe to be the earliest pyramid constructed at Saqqara, the Step Pyramid of Josa. Josa is often referred to as the first pharaoh of the old kingdom of Egypt. Alongside his trusted vizier and expert architect Imhotep, Josa had ambitions of creating something much more special than the Mastaba tombs of previous pharaohs. It isn't completely clear why Imhotep designed a pyramid, but the step pyramid of Josa is described as a construction of mastabas, one on top of the other, in decreasing sizes. Now the only thing that we have seen which is similar to this are the late 3rd century ziggurats constructed by the Mesopotamians. The most elaborate ziggurats are buildings constructed on top of each other in decreasing sizes. The step pyramid does not look like a ziggurat. Ziggurats look more like a residential or administrative building than a pyramid, which looks like an aesthetic temple. The pyramid is also a very basic geometric shape. Like the ziggurats of Mesopotamia, the step pyramid of Djoser was built as the central feature of a spiritual complex. This complex had an outer wall with a number of false doors. Now, we find a lot of false doors on pyramids and mastabas, which are said to be so that the spirit of the deceased can come and go from the tomb. But also these fake doors that we find on the wall of the entire complex would have been incredibly frustrating to anyone trying to raid the complex. The step pyramid was built at Saqqara and is thought to have been constructed using stones that were once part of another monument. It is also believed that it may have started out as a mastaba before a decision was made to elaborate on it. It's believed to have become the tallest man-made structure in the world, surpassing the Tower of Jericho, which was mentioned way back in episode 17 of volume 1. Snefru's Pyramids Snefru was a 4th dynasty pharaoh who we mentioned in episode 12 on the Old Kingdom. Djoser is thought to have been around during the 27th century BCE, and Snefru may have lived within a hundred years of this. Snefru is known for his campaigns into Nubia and Libya to try to expand the influence of the old kingdom of Egypt, but he embarked on the next stage of pyramid building which would outdo Djoser and his vizier Imhotep. 
we have to travel a bit further south from Saqqara to find the work commissioned by Snefru. The first pyramid of interest is at a place called Maidan. The pyramid at Maidan appears to be a step pyramid, very similar to the step pyramid of Djosa at Saqqara. However, there does appear to be a genuine attempt to try and convert this into a true pyramid by using the step pyramid as a kind of inner structure. It appears that over time, the pyramid of Maidan has fallen into ruin as the uppermost steps appear to now be missing. It still stands taller than the step pyramid of Djosa in its ruined state, but at its estimated true height, it could have been as tall as 90 metres, which is one and a half times the height of the step pyramid of Djosa. The pyramid of Maidan looks like a step pyramid now, and due to its ruined state, it has also been referred to as a false pyramid. Snefru is something of an enigma in Egyptian history. He referred to himself as the perfect god, which seems to point towards a belief during the Old Kingdom that the pharaohs regarded themselves as living deities, but Snefru has a bit more about him than the other pharaohs. Never before was there such vigorous pyramid building. Snefru's pyramid at Maidan was the best one ever and in a completely different location than the traditional ones such as at Saqqara. Egyptologists cannot all agree on how oppressive the state was against its people as written records could be biased and we don't see the emergence of such monumental building projects as the pyramids anywhere else in history. So what kind of dynamics would have had to have existed in everyday Egyptian societies for such wonderful things to have happened? We may have to look further into the other pyramids to look for clues to answer this. Snefru could possibly have abandoned the Pyramid of Maidan to construct pyramids at an alternative location further north and comparatively close to Saqqara again, at a place called Dashur, and it is here that we find two fascinating pyramids. The first one worth discussing is called the Bent Pyramid. It has this name due to the fact that its edges initially rise from the ground at an angle of 55 degrees and then at around halfway up it changes to a flatter 43 degree angle which gives it a unique look. Some argue that this was a deliberate design however there does appear to be some fundamental cracks that indicate pressure stress possibly caused by the weight of its own structure and the solution may have been to stop building at a halfway point and change the plan. Even with this alteration in design, the bent pyramid would have been higher than a completed pyramid of Maidan, and therefore the new tallest man-made structure in the world. However, yet another pyramid was built, and this time it was built very close to the bent pyramid. This pyramid was built at a 43 degree angle from its base to its peak and therefore it is the first example of a well-built traditional looking Egyptian pyramid. This is called the Red Pyramid, marginally taller than the Bent Pyramid. It's called Red 
due to the red hue of the local limestone. The internal chambers of these pyramids suggest that either there was an older structure and that the red pyramid was simply built around this structure or that the stones were imported from an older structure that existed elsewhere. Why did Snefru build so many pyramids? We're not completely sure. Perhaps he was building pyramids for multiple pharaohs. It has been suggested by Egyptologists that Snefru had no regard for other pharaohs due to the fact that he titled himself as the perfect god and chose to build his pyramids away from the traditional royal Egyptian tomb sites. It could be that Snefru wanted to build a true pyramid and was dissatisfied with the Maidam and Bent pyramids but continued their construction as a means to learn more about the physics of architecture. What we can be sure of is that the successful construction of Snefru's pyramids would lead the Egyptians to have the fundamental knowledge of how to take on even bigger building projects. The Great Pyramid of Giza During the 26th century BCE, a new pyramid was built at a site called Giza, which was further north than Dashur and Saqqara. The pyramid would ultimately become the pinnacle of Egyptian pyramid building. It would remain the tallest man-made structure in the world until the construction of Lincoln Cathedral in the year 1311 CE. It would come to be known as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world and the only one of those wonders to still exist to this day. The fiercest debate among modern-day societies revolve around the question of how the Egyptians, without the aid of modern technology, were able to lift the locally quarried and carefully prepared two-tonne stones into place. So let's just briefly revisit the purpose of pyramid building. So it could be described as tomb building gone out of control. Originally it was Mastaba tombs, which were a monument constructed over a burial chamber dug deep into the ground which would house a tomb, which would be the final resting place of a pharaoh, and as times progressed, other important members of society. The Mastaba tombs were a flat-top precursor to the pyramids, and the pyramids were an expansion of the Mastaba tombs. They would still sit atop of the burial chambers but would simply be a more awesome feat of construction and engineering that would outdo anything previous, likely to denote the superior abilities of the latest pharaoh. Snefru may have been an example of a pharaoh who went pyramid crazy and could have been responsible for a spate of huge pyramid building, the likes of which the world had never witnessed the likes of before. As with Josa, using his vizier Imhotep to organise the actual construction of his pyramid, it is thought that Snefru would have used the assistance of his own vizier Nefamat, who we believe to be Snefru's own son. Interestingly enough, Nefamat, despite not becoming a pharaoh himself, had a very grand mastaba tomb built for himself at Maidan, 
demonstrating that the pyramids were indeed supposed to be reserved for the pharaohs themselves. It is likely that Nefermat was heavily involved in the construction of Snefru's pyramids at Maidam and Dashur, and that knowledge was passed down to Nefermat's own son, Hemiunu. Hemiunu would also become a vizier, and he was in service to the pharaoh called Khufu. It is very likely that the responsibility for the organisation of the project would have fallen on the shoulders of Hemiunu. Inside the Great Pyramid Currently it is possible to enter the Great Pyramid of Giza and access the internal chambers. However, this wasn't originally the intention as the entrance would have been sealed off. The entrance that we see today was constructed in the 9th century CE by the Abbasid Caliph called Al-Mamun, who was simply entering the pyramid to discover its secrets. Due to this breach and subsequent tunnel called the Robbers Tunnel, we can access the inner chambers of the pyramid. We can see that there is the somewhat expected subterranean chamber, but it does appear to be somewhat incomplete. The purpose of this chamber is unknown, but it isn't an unfamiliar feature when inspecting earlier pyramids and mastabas. Other chambers exist within the middle of the pyramid, however, and these deserve more attention. Upon entering the pyramid at ground level, you begin a gradual ascent to a chamber above ground level. This will lead to a great gallery, which is a long corridor-shaped room by which modern explorers can continue their ascent through the pyramid. The way in which this room is constructed gives an indication that the Egyptians had an advanced knowledge of physics, especially when it came to balancing construction pressures. This demonstrates a great deal of mathematical and logistical knowledge, quite possibly aided by lessons learned from the problems encountered when constructing the Bent Pyramid. At the uppermost end of the Great Gallery is the King's Chamber. This can be considered to be quite humble by comparison to some of the chambers in other pyramids. The walls are blank and the sarcophagus is not decorated or finished with the same degree of effort as those found elsewhere. The walls are built with granite and the construction appears to be very precise. So it was important that good quality material was used and that the architectural accuracy was vital. So although some of the features of the chamber may indicate a bit of a rush job, it is clear that the physical construction on the whole was very careful and considerate. There are chambers directly above the King's Chamber which some have hypothesised could even be built to alleviate physical pressures on the King's Chamber preventing an internal collapse although this is just pure speculation. There is also a Queen's Chamber which is accessed 
via a lower tunnel. The physics of the Great Pyramid One of the most astonishing aspects of the Great Pyramid is its north-south-east-west orientation. It could just be cast away as something which is coincidental, but the accuracy of this orientation is impossible to ignore. It is pretty much spot on. The fact that Snefru's red pyramid also shows accurate alignment demonstrates that coincidence is not a possibility. These pyramids were constructed with a desire for them to face true north, as the entrances were often on the north face. Modern experiments have demonstrated that by using upright pillars, you can track the shadows at the equinox and determine an accurate east to west line. Egyptians would have undoubtedly understood the solstices and equinoxes. The solstices are the days of the year when daylight lasts for the longest and shortest periods, and the equinoxes were the midpoints between the solstices when day and night take an equal 12 hours each. We know that the Egyptians understood these natural phenomena because all successful agricultural societies would have had to develop a deep understanding of the seasons. And the solstices and equinoxes were the start and end points for all of this understanding. We are not saying that this is actually how the Egyptians did it, but we are merely demonstrating that the Egyptians had an understanding of their surroundings enough that obtaining this kind of accuracy should not surprise us too much. It is possible to determine true north by simple observations of the night sky as the stars each night will revolve around a central point which can also be measured and used and also would have been quite fascinating to the Egyptians. Muology is a very modern technique of using some of the tiniest known physical particles of the universe called muons to read the relative densities of large objects. This type of science has been used on the Great Pyramid of Giza and there has been a very interesting result. A little higher up and a little closer to the north face of the pyramid from the king's chamber, muology has detected a large open space within the pyramid. Could this be yet another chamber? Nobody knows for sure as it's impossible to access this area which has been tentatively labelled as the big void. Some have suggested that it is purely another open area constructed to provide less stress or pressure to the pyramid as a whole, preventing the cracking of stones or the collapse of the structure. What if this big void contains secrets and treasures that would completely alter our understanding of this fascinating era of our history? There are some who find it difficult to accept that known human intelligence alone was enough to construct the Great Pyramid of Giza and that there are a lot more aspects of the Great Pyramid of Giza that point towards a greater energy being behind the construction of this monument. 
it is suggested that the height of the pyramid and indeed its location are no coincidence and that the location of the king's chamber within the pyramid is also not by chance alone. Some believe that the physics and geometry of the Great Pyramid of Giza is directly relative to the physics and geometry of the entire planet. Whilst this must seem like a very far out conclusion to draw, there are many respected individuals who have gone to great lengths to prove the mathematics of this claim. A sceptical, fence-sitting agnostic like myself is always going to find it hard to accept such theories. However, any theory with any semblance of foundation must be listened to, even if, at the very least, it should be interesting, even if it is unbelievable. I always recommend the lectures and works of Graham Hancock, the British writer born in 1950. We mentioned Graham before when discussing the Anatolian megalithic temple of Gobekli Tepe, which was built 7,000 years before the Great Pyramid of Giza. And Graham believes that all of this may point towards an undiscovered society of advanced intelligence that predates the Egyptians and is yet to be discovered. If it is discovered that there was a prehistoric society with highly advanced intelligence and astrophysical understandings, then I will surely have to scrap volume one of this podcast and start all over again. The building of the Great Pyramid. So let's get on to one of the most important questions that everybody asks when discussing the Great Pyramid of Giza. Exactly how was it built? At this stage, I want to tell you that I am about to uncover the secrets of how this pyramid was built. I want to, but I'm not able to. However, I will attempt to explore the most listened to theories relating to it. We will look at who built it, with what and how it was built. There does appear to be a vague mainstream feeling about how this pyramid was built. The one that we should initially reinforce with confidence is that the Egyptians didn't wake up one morning and decide to build this pyramid. The project was a continuation of a pyramid building society using all of their wealth of experience and knowledge to move on to the next great project. Egyptians knew how to build pyramids. The Great Pyramid of Giza was built with locally quarried limestone. It is important to state that potentially all of the limestone may not have been quarried as new and as one project. And what I mean by this is that there is evidence of Egyptians deconstructing buildings to rebuild new ones. So potentially there is a possibility of some of the limestone already being at Giza as part of a different building. The importation of the limestone would have been a monumental task and this could have been done in a number of ways. The Egyptians could have used logs underneath the limestone blocks to convey them along the ground but it is also suggested that the surface of the sand being moistened in order to create a slick surface would require less strength to pull the limestone blocks along. Also we have visions 
of large teams of people pulling these blocks with long ropes but there is also no reason why beasts of burden such as oxen were not a part of the process. Personally I also do not disregard the possibility of the use of wheeled transport. Even though we have absolutely no evidence of wheeled transport existing in Egypt this far back in the country's history, wheels were certainly emerging in other parts of the world this early, as we understand chariotry existed in Mesopotamia during this period. For us to believe that these great mathematical and geometric minds that could actually build a pyramid would not have had the ability to recognise the potential of a simple circular object on an axle being a good means of transport is hard to believe. However, I stress that this is a personal feeling based on other evidence and there is little or no direct evidence of wheel use in the construction of the pyramids. There is a good theory of the use of ramps which garners a good degree of popularity. Ramp building was a good solution to problems of height and we certainly have seen ramp building as an ancient solution to breaching the walls of a city in the story of the Siege of Lachish which we explored in episode 8. But I must state though that this was not the work of Egyptians and was over a thousand years later. But it does show that ramps were not out of the question. Jean-Pierre Houdin is a French architect who was born in Paris in 1951. When studying the methods of construction of the Great Pyramid of Giza, his name is frequently mentioned. Houdin has hypothesised that although there may have been an initial ramp by which to lift the blocks to a height of around 60 metres off the ground, that the remaining ramps are actually now within the construction of the pyramid, so maybe there was a central structure and a spiral ramp built around that structure and then the body of the pyramid was built around the whole lot before being encased in a covering of casing stones, also a type of limestone. This would have given the pyramid a smooth and bright looking finish. Although we cannot see this today, we can see remnants of this kind of work at the top of the adjacent massive pyramid of Khafra. The workers at the Great Pyramid. The Greek historian Herodotus, who we have mentioned on a number of occasions, gave us a vision of tens of thousands of slaves being forced to undertake physical tasks to the limits of their abilities to lift these massive limestone blocks into place. Modern historians do not believe that the pyramids were built using oppressed slave labour. In fact, to be involved in the construction of these great monuments may well have been considered to be a great honour. Imagine being a lowly worker at an irrigation channel tasked with removing silt from the waterways and being approached to work at the greatest spiritual monuments ever built. You would undoubtedly feel like it was your calling. The viziers would have wanted committed and reliable, fit and able workers to be able to achieve the desired result in the shortest time possible. 
obedient cooperators who would have been enthusiastic about doing their absolute best to give their pharaoh and their living deity the perfect tomb in which to commute to the afterlife with maximum ease and glory. So already I have been able to paint an alternative attitude to the actual physical task of pyramid building other than those visions of whipped slaves that could have been the theory of the past. Sir Flinders Petrie is a very important name in the history of Egyptology. He was a British archaeologist born in London in 1853 and his work in the archaeological field is respected much like that of Sir Leonard Woolley, another British archaeologist that we mentioned in relation to his work at the Mesopotamian city of Ur. We spoke of him way back in episode 3. Sir Flinders Petrie worked in an age where radiocarbon dating had not yet been developed and so developed an archaeological expertise in dating artefacts based on the type of pottery that was in the same sedimentary layers. Sir Flinders Petrie was working at a Middle Kingdom pyramid site called Lahun when he found the remains of a labourer's encampment. So this suggests that individuals were brought in to live and work at the complex itself, maybe even held captive. However, the Middle Kingdom as we have discovered, was a totally different age to the Old Kingdom when the Great Pyramid of Giza was built. A hundred years after Petrie's discovery, the grave pit of a labourer was discovered at Giza. The labourer had been laid to rest very carefully and with offerings of bread and beer. Animal remains found near the labourer's encampment demonstrate that the labourers had a good meat-rich diet, so they were actually well-respected workers going against the theory of oppressive slave labour. Graffiti on the blocks used to build the pyramids demonstrates a team ethic among the labourers, which demonstrates that there was literacy among the workers. One particular graffiti written by the drunks of Menkauri evoked thoughts of a good atmosphere at the end of the working day as the workforce sat together eating meat and drinking beer. It was probably a good experience, even though it would have been hard graft in the desert sun. The Giza Necropolis The drunks of Menkauri were probably responsible for building the third biggest pyramid at the Giza Necropolis. The Pyramid of Menkauri is about half the height of the two larger pyramids and is distinguishable by the deep gouge visible on one side caused by a failed attempt by the Ayyubids to dismantle the pyramid during the 12th century CE. Menkauri was the son of Khafra for whom the Pyramid of Khafra was built. We mentioned this pyramid earlier in the podcast as the one that had retained some of its casing stones at the top, making the pyramid look quite distinctive. Interestingly, the pyramid of Khafra is built at an angle of 53 degrees, which is almost the same angle as the lower portion of the bent pyramid. 
So maybe by the time of the construction of the Pyramid of Khafra, the builders had learned enough about how to limit pressure in such tall structures in order to prevent a later collapse. The other great monument possibly commissioned by the pharaoh Khafra was the Great Sphinx of Giza. The Sphinx is a mythical creature with the body of a lion and the head of a human and in the case of the Great Sphinx it is thought to have the face of Khafra himself. You could possibly devote an entire podcast to the theories relating to the Great Sphinx alone. Was it built before or during the construction of the Pyramid of Khafra? Was it even built for Khafra? Was it even built in his lifetime? What we do know is that it is there, carved out of the limestone bedrock, with the carved limestone being used in the construction of the Pyramid of Khafra, and it represents the most astonishing ancient sculpture. Khafra's father was Khufu, and it is the Pharaoh Khufu who we believe was the pharaoh for whom the Great Pyramid of Giza was built. The three pyramids of Khufu, Khafra and Menkauri have a very strange similarity in their layout to the three stars of the belt of the constellation of Orion, which has excited debate even more regarding the pseudoscientific theories regarding the possibilities relating to the layout of the necropolis. I can't say whether this was done deliberately or not, but the similarity is a little uncanny. Later Pyramids Pyramid construction continued after Giza, but it would never reach those dizzying heights again. Other Old Kingdom pyramids were typically built at Abusir and Saqqara, and were generally between 50 and 60 metres in height, less than half the height of the giant constructions at Giza. Pyramid building appears to have been abandoned after the disintegration of the Old Kingdom. There was no centralised Egyptian identity during this first intermediate period, so therefore no almighty living deity pharaoh for whom to build an impressive structure. However, with the emergence of a new Egyptian kingdom in what we refer to in the modern age as the Middle Kingdom of Egypt, even though the pharaoh's absolute rule would have been much less absolute than the pharaohs of the Old Kingdom, the Middle Kingdom pharaohs had a desire to bring back the glory days of pyramid funerary complexes, but this time the pyramids were made from mud bricks as opposed to limestone. These Middle Kingdom mud brick pyramids have not survived the test of time well. And if we look at examples such as the Black Pyramid built at Dashur near to the Bent Pyramid and the Red Pyramid, it does just look like a dull ruin. And you would walk straight past it in order to look at the Old Kingdom structures. There are many examples of ruined Middle Kingdom pyramids and undoubtedly they would have looked impressive at the time may be even as impressive as the Old Kingdom pyramids, but it is difficult to get away from the sense of a desire to imitate an incredibly wealthy, pious, unified and organised culture, and that those days were gone. The legacy of the Old Kingdom pyramids has stayed until the modern age, 
whereas the legacy of the Middle Kingdom pyramids has disappeared. At the start of the New Kingdom of Egypt, a kingdom that we have not yet explored, we find that the pharaoh Amos I commissioned the construction of a pyramid at the Upper Egyptian location of Abydos during the 16th century BCE. It is believed that it was constructed to be a monument as opposed to a tomb and all that remains now is a mound of rubble. The pharaohs of Egypt didn't bother with pyramids anymore as they chose to be buried in royal tombs such as those discovered at the famous Valley of the Kings. The age of the pyramids was over. Next time we will be looking more closely at this emergence of a new power in the Egyptian lands again as we explore the story of the new kingdom. Thank you very much. Once again, it was a long episode this week. I apologise, but then again, with the pyramids, it's very, very difficult to put in a small episode for this one. It's a major part of history and it's a major talking point, so it was it was necessary to overrun a little bit to get as much information in as possible. Now, as I've mentioned on many occasions, you can contact the podcast. We have a presence on Facebook and on Twitter. The Facebook page is History of the World Podcast, and the Twitter handle is at Hot World Podcast. Um, we have people who have got in touch through Facebook, as we often do. Um, this one's from Michael Collins, uh, and he's put, uh, Hi Chris, I only just discovered your podcast a few weeks ago, but I've just finished volume one. I found it very easy to understand while still being very technical, which was great for my small engineering brain. I have a question related to the current diet fads, like the paleo diet, going round that state grains are bad for us and are not easily digestible. They go on to say that our gut microbiome has developed over thousands of years based on plants and meats, so these are the easiest to digest, so stay away from grains. I guess I found it interesting that grains and rice have been cultivated by early humans in the Fertile Crescent and China for thousands of years. Is there any evidence, stories, which suggest how they may have prepared their grains, etc.? Random question, I know, but I thought you may have come across this in your research. Keep up the great work, mate. Can't wait for Volume 2. Michael from Australia. Thank you, Michael. Um, I love getting messages off of listeners, so I really do appreciate the fact that you took the time to get in touch. Very interesting question. Um, I'm no expert when it comes to um, biology or, or you know, what is good for us in terms of what we consume and, and why we consume it and what advantages, disadvantages it has. That's not really my expert area at all. Um, what I do know is that um, if we look at Utsi the Iceman, for example, I don't know about digestion, but certainly his grain uh, eating didn't do his teeth any favours because we used his rotten teeth to find out that he had been eating grain his whole life and it, and it really hadn't done him many favours. Uh, from a digestion point of view, I'm not totally sure, to be honest with you. I mean, humans have threshed and broken down their grains for many thousands of years, certainly since the Neolithic and probably before that. 
I would very well imagine there was much in the way of um, of you know wild grain consumption initially before we domesticated it and changed it into the more recognisable domestic uh, grains that we cultivate today. So yes, it's always been a major part of our diet, and um, I guess that we are we're supposed to consume them. I don't think it's bad for us, but I, like, I think with anything, it's everything in moderation. I mean, if you just eat, if all you do all day is eat grain, then it's probably not going to do you a lot of good. Um, I've always been told a nice balanced diet, good square meals, and that's uh, that's what's good for you. Plenty of vitamins, and uh, you're all right there. So uh, my advice is don't spend your whole life eating grain. Have a good balanced diet, but grain is probably not going to kill you. I just would like to stress very, 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 very importantly, I am no expert, so please do not listen to any of my advice. Also received a message from Stuart Ballingall, um, who uh, is from here in the UK. He says, hi, Chris, I'm really loving the podcast at the moment. Just finished the Gebekli Tepe episode, so still got a way to catch up. I do sound designer and audio editing as part of my day job. Wonderful. And I've been thinking about getting into podcast production for a while and just wanted to say if ever you need any help with production editing side of your podcast, give me a shout and I'll be happy to see if I can help in any way. Stu, thank you very much. A very, very, very kind gesture, a very kind offer. I'm not really sure, to be honest with you. I'm like, once again, I'm, I'm no expert when it comes to being a sound engineer at all I, I just bought a, a reasonably decent quality microphone rigged it up to my laptop and started making podcasts using audacity as a, an editing suite it's a good free editing suite so it's it's relatively inexpensive to set up i think the only thing i really did invest in was a good quality microphone um so yeah i mean if anyone's got any advice on how the podcast can be improved from a production point of view, I'm all ears. You know, anything that makes the podcast better, I'm I'm more than happy. As long as we can afford it, you know, I don't think um, buying a, a, a studio is going to be in question, really. But anything like sort of practical, any practical advice is always gratefully received. But thank you for getting in touch, Stuart. It means a lot. Uh, we got a I got sent a message by C Co's Daily on Twitter. And uh, just says, just found you on Spotify and can't wait to start at the beginning. Yes, we've built up a good library of podcasts now. So all of a sudden, um, you know, we're, all, we're only a couple of couple of months away from our first year completed. And we've got how many podcasts now? 14 in volume two, 24 in volume one. So we've got, we've got 38 podcast episodes now. It's growing all the time. I have to dish out a thank you once again to Ryan Stitt from the Ancient um, Greece podcast, History of Ancient Greece podcast, always promotes the History of the World podcast and, and recommended it as well this week and uh, really appreciate your support, Ryan. And uh, likewise, I've um, I've put you on the recommended podcasts on the History of the World podcast uh, webpage on the website. Uh, if you click on uh, great podcast links I think I'm not sure what I've called it but it's uh, yeah there's a link to other podcasts on there uh, which I strongly recommend listening to some of my uh, actual favourites are on there and uh, it's well worth um, looking at them and seeing if any of them are of interest to you you can add them to your library 
Well, I do think that's going to be it for another week now. Don't forget that we should be supporting the History of the World podcast listener, Brendan Wood, in his attempt to run the London Marathon. Maybe by the time most listeners listen to this podcast, he will have already completed the course because uh, I think the race should start maybe six hours after this podcast gets published. So um, there won't be a lot of time to think about it. It'll be out on the roads of London, running those 26 miles, raising money for the Princess Royal Trust for Carers in Hampshire in the UK. I've posted the link on the website. I'll share it once again in the hope that maybe a few listeners might be able to rummage around in their pocket and spare a couple of quid or a couple of dollars just to uh, donate to Brendan Wood's worthy cause so don't forget that um, messages of support on the Facebook page would be great for Brendan I'm sure Um, so um, wish him luck Uh, next week it's ancient Egypt the new kingdom and um, until next time hope you have a great week everybody and uh, we'll hook up again this time next week the history of the world podcast is available on many different podcast platforms So please, don't forget to rate and review us wherever you find us. Visit our website at historyoftheworldpodcast.com and email us at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com Support the podcast at Patreon by clicking the Support the Podcast link at our website and join us on social media at Facebook, Twitter and Tumblr.